0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here. Uh, we're going to get to our interview here shortly with Lucas Michelle. Lucas is the U.S. Mid-Am champ. He is from Australia. You may remember him from season one of Taurus Sauce, the Metropolitan episode. Uh, he was featured in that episode. He just played in the U.S. AM, the U.S. Open, and, of course, the Masters. So we spent some time with him just debriefing on an amazing year he's had and uh, great stories from Augusta and people he learned from and, it's great. It's great perspective on uh, something that everyone really dreams of doing with uh, a year of their life. Um, before we get going here, the Match 3.0 Champions for Change. We got Phil Mickelson and Charles Barkley against Stephen Curry and Peyton Manning. That's going down this Friday at CallawayGolf.com slash The Match. You can learn more about what Callaway Golf is and Stephen Curry, uh, their partnership, what they're doing with Howard University, their men's and women's golf programs. It's going to be covered on the telecast on Friday. It's something we touched on in Tuesday's podcast with Stephen, uh, which you should should definitely check out if you have not already done so. On that page, you'll also have the opportunity to bid uh, in an auction for custom Stephen Curry-inspired wedges with the auction benefiting Stephen and Aisha Curry's Eat, Learn, Play Foundation. Uh, and on Friday, you're going to be seeing lots of Callaway clubs and golf balls in action, especially in the bags of, of Phil and Mr. Curry. Uh, to learn what's in their bags, go to callawaygolf.com slash the match. And speaking of bags, on that page, you'll have a chance to enter to win a Callaway Mavericks staff bag signed by all four players. So callawaygolf.com slash the match and tune in to the match 3.0 champions for change on Friday. Let's get to our interview with Lucas Michel. All right, how far into uh, the quarantine are we? And what how, what's the come down like after the the summer and the year you've had?
1: Yeah, so I'm. This is day four, stuck in the Novotel apartments in Darling Harbour in Sydney. So I've actually got a pretty good view at my room, but it gets old quickly when you're stuck in a room, the same room for what is going to be 14 days straight. But yeah, it's it's definitely it's a, obviously a come down, but in a way, it's a good time to sort of reflect and i've got plenty of time to think about everything that i've done in the last you know four months of being in the us and um all the tournament you know the tournaments i've played and people i've met and experiences i've had so it's actually kind of a good little period to just let it all soak in yeah it's 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 actually kind of nice but yeah i'm not quite sick of it yet but i'm sure i'll be sick of it in another couple days
0: well it's got to be you know th- this technology is it- it's it's great it so much of it doesn't get put to use but for a select few people in the world and their families the fact that every shot you hit at the masters is cataloged on masters.com and you can go back and watch all of it. And your family could see every shot that you hit at the masters. That has to be a pretty damn cool thing. I mean that that you played in the U S open as well. We're going to talk about all that, but that doesn't exist for the U S open, but you could watch your master's highlights. You know, you could torture yourself. You could treat yourself to just the birdies. What's that like?
1: Yeah, I've, I've gone back and watched both rounds, like from start to finish. It's, it's really cool. I mean, I can, I can see stuff in my swing as well that are like, Oh yeah, I, I, like my takeaways, the main thing I'm working on at the moment, my takeaway gets a little bit on the inside and I get, I'm watching myself and I know oh, that shot, I forgot about it. And then I hit a bad shot. So it's like really cool to review things and get that sort of feedback from like a golf, perspective as well just understanding what I'm doing with my golfing but yeah obviously for my family as well I mean they they were stuck in Australia there was really no way for them to go um, as a player you're allowed to take one other person uh, either like a significant other or parent so I thought about trying to get my mum over but it's just you know it's so far to go and she would have had to get a travel exemption even to leave Australia and then she would have been in the same boat as me trying to get home probably going to have to fork out you know a few things Dollars just to get home. So, um, the experience that they got from that website and and the app. I mean, I mean that's hard to beat. What what they're able to do there. I mean, Augusta National. They're pretty damn good. Whenever they put their mind to something, they they can just do it better than anyone. Hmm.
0: Uh, your situation, I find, is is very unique, and we're going to get into kind of your golf background and, you know, your plans going forward. And you and I don't know each other very well. We were, you know, you were in saw season one, if people don't remember that, but we didn't even get to play together that day. But I think this was as close as I've ever felt to just like a buddy of mine playing in the Masters. <laughs> like yeah. Something that, you know, was just so, I remember following your mid-end match, just like knowing that that was the light at the end of the tunnel for me. And as far as like, he's going to play in the Masters if he wins this. So like, holy shit, he's going to play in the Masters. And you did. So, like, what, what, how, how do you go about playing like a round of golf, like that final match, knowing what is all is on the line for winning it? Are you able to like focus on winning the mid-AM and not think about the exemptions? Or did that creep in at all during that day? What do you remember about that?
1: I know in the lead up to the final, I was really good at sort of blocking it out. I was. I had a funny sort of schedule lined up. Like I was looking at turning pro straight after the mid-am. Mid-am was going to be like my last event as an amateur um, because, you know, I was 25. I was like, okay, it's time to finally kind of turn pro and give that a shot. And so I had some pro events lined up post mid-am that I was looking forward to. So all week I was playing the mid-am and I was like like thinking, uh, how great's turning pro going to be and playing those pro events. So I kind of had this win-win scenario set up in my mind because I kept winning matches in the mid end that was great and maybe I'd you know get closer to winning the tournament but also if I got knocked out I was excited to return home and 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 play some pro golf so it wasn't until I got to the semi-final I played Stu Hagerstad and was like three up through seven or something like that and I was like holy crap I could actually win this and win them and and be playing in the masters in you know a few months time so yeah it wasn't until the it was the semi-final that that the realization key and then obviously that evening going to the final um you know your mind starts wandering and you start thinking about the consequences of the the next day's play and I really had to try and settle myself and not think about it luckily I was staying with some some good people that were friends of friends that um, put me up for the week and they weren't golfers so I could just chat about you know non-golf stuff with them so I managed to get a pretty good sleep and got out there on the golf course and probably to my advantage, I was down most of the day. So I think Joe, my opponent was probably thinking more about winning than I was. And then late down the stretch, I just sort of held it together and my game was really solid. I think I birdied 14, 15 and 16 on the back nine. And, uh, you know, that kind of got me to couple up and then ended up winning. So it was kind of, I didn't really expect to win all day because Joe was playing so well, but then, some cracks appeared in his game and my game was really solid late and I ended up walking away with a victory. It was just, yeah, it was a funny kind of week, I guess.
0: Well, it didn't end without any drama. And I had honestly kind of just getting ready for this. I kind of forgotten about how it did end, but can you explain yeah. what happened on the, uh, what ended up being the final hole of the match? Cause even rereading about it, I'm still just like, how does, how does this happen? I, I don't really even know
1: what happened. Like it's, it was bizarre. So I had three and a half feet left and Joe had a, like a 12-footer for birdie to win the hole. So he missed the birdie part um, and I was dormy too. So I had to hole a three and a half footer for the win. But after he missed, he kind of stepped aside and took his hat off. And then I'm looking at him and he starts walking over towards me. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? Oh, you know, what's going on here? And then he's got his hat off and then I'm, I take my hat off and we shake hands. Um, and he says, oh, like, you're going to have to putt it. Like, it's, it's not good. <laughs> and so I'm like, wait a minute, what's happening here? I, and so in- instantly I'm like, this guy's trying to do something. Like, this guy's done this on purpose to throw me off. Like, and now I'm like rattled. I've got to hold this three and a half footer for the win. And I was just really confused by the whole situation. And luckily I did hold it. I mean, in my mind, just the way it all happened, like it seemed like it was some sort of intentional play to try and throw me off. But I I did look into like what he said about it. And I think he said that he took his hat off to like step aside and let me finish. But he said he heard the crowd clapping, thinking it was done and that he had to come over and shake my hand, which was just, well, it would come over to me and explain things, but he shook my hand. It was just, it was all like really... I don't know what happened to, to be honest. It seems like it was just so weird. I'd love to watch it back on video and really see what happened. Cause I know for sure that, you know, I, I didn't think the game was finished. I was ready to hit that three and a half footer. So there was no need for him to really walk over to me and tell me to hole it. It was, it was bizarre.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're a three and a half, like for the win. I mean, I don't care if it was 18 inches, like I would expect it to be putted, but yeah, once that, and you've made some comments afterwards that, yeah, once that awkward moment happened, like if I'm him, it's easy for me to say. I'm not not you know master's birth not on the line, but like I wouldn't want if you miss it and the match flips on that and you go win it. That you got to live with that, and that wouldn't be wouldn't that's got to be difficult. So it didn't sound like still didn't sound like you were too happy about it, which is understandable. Yeah, no, it was
1: it was very odd. It was, I didn't want to win it that way, but it was yeah, it was just a bit awkward at the end. Yeah.
0: Thank you for making that putt, then that we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Have to discuss that. Yeah, I was well, happy. I promise I'm not burying the lead for anyone that's tuning in to hear about the masters, but I, I do kind of want to set the scene for, you know, how you got there and whatnot. So, you know, probably should have just started with this, but your background in golf, um, you know, I, I, and I think it's at least in the States, especially, it's not necessarily typical for, you know, someone to be competing in the mid ams and then turn professional. Usually it's kind of the opposite. A lot of the top mid were, were professionals that, you know, have gotten their amateur status back and whatnot, but how did you end up in the States this year playing in the mid am, winning it, and uh kind of what your golf background is?
1: Yeah, I um so I you know, grew up playing golf. Neither of my parents played. So I kinda just picked it up organically. My my I had a neighbor who gave me a cut down club when I was four, and then I started whacking around the backyard and 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 then it wasn't until I was seven that I, I kind of decided on my own that I wanted I wanted to do more of this whacking a golf ball around. I was an only child and golf's the sort of sport where you don't need someone else to play it with. Really. You can kind of do it all yourself. So I really like the idea of it. So for my birthday, my eighth birthday, I got a set of just like a really cheap set of clubs. Um, and my dad took me down to the park and I started whacking them. And then he sort of saw I had pretty good sort of hand eye coordination. So I then started getting some lessons, entering some junior tournaments, joined a local club. Um, and then, yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of off, off and away. And, played a bunch of golf through, um, high school. And I did at times consider looking into college golf. Um, I probably wasn't quite at the level that I needed to be when I finished high school. Um, I had, you know, some good performances in junior tournaments, but I mean, when you're coming from Australia, other side of the world, those coaches really want to see kind of some international kind of performances and, and, decided to stay put in Australia. I moved from Perth, though, to Melbourne. Melbourne is the golfing capital of Australia, and the coaching's better there, the courses are better, and the, just sort of everything about Melbourne was was better for as a golfer uh, growing up. So I uh, moved to Melbourne, uh, ended up studying there, studied an engineering degree. In that time, spent six months in St Andrews, Scotland, um, on an exchange program to the University of St Andrews, which was probably the best time of my life and then when I finished uh finished my education I never felt like I'd given golf my full attention I'd played you know top level amateur stuff through university but we don't really have a collegiate um sort of golf um tournament system so it was all external to 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 college and um and so yeah I decided that I wanted to give golf a proper shot after I graduated and spent 20 end of 2017 and 2018, like working on my game. And then in late 2018, I entered the Australian qualifying school and was hoping to get a card and turn pro. And unfortunately I missed out by a couple of shots, but it turned out that was probably the best thing that could have happened because it meant that I stayed amateur for another year and, you know, made my mind up that I was going to wait it out until the mid am because I was 25 that year. And, and, I was ranked high enough in the world amateur golf rankings that I got an exemption into the mid-am. And, and that's how I ended up at the Colorado Golf Club in September 2019 and ended up yeah, coming away <laughs> with a victory that I certainly didn't expect to.
0: From what I gather uh, at Colorado Golf Club that week you know, and seeing some of the scores, like there was some some of the best players, you know, best mid-ams in the world were shooting some pretty high scores there. It was firm, firm, firm and i thought back to as i'm watching these results come in and watching you kind of climb up the leaderboard i'm like man that day we spent with you at metropolitan was about as firm as i've ever seen a golf course so it's not hard to connect the two dots of just like your experience competing on firm you know firm golf courses and how that played out for you
1: yeah if there was a course set up that favored me it was that week it was so firm and fast it was exactly like playing in melbourne the only thing was obviously that the altitude you know the ball's going 10 11% further that was probably the one one little thing i had to factor in but i mean yeah i would have been probably the most comfortable out of anyone in that field with those conditions just cuz it was it was so firm and fast
0: did joe really hit wedge on whatever the last par 3 was from 211 like yeah. was it playing that fast and firm
1: yeah i hit a 9 iron, um oh. and but there was a there was a hole i think it was the 5th I think it was a downhill par three and it was like 230 yards, but you had to like to a back pin, you had to land at 30 yards short. It was so firm. Like you're hitting like seven iron because of the altitude and everything on a 230 yard hole, just because it was playing so firm. I mean, they were really bouncing and rolling out. It was, it was incredible to play. It was really cool.
0: So you win, the midam am uh, obviously you you know exactly what's going to going to come from this kind of take us through the timeline of how you're getting ready what where are you spending your time leading up into the playing in the masters and then obviously covid throws a big curveball at you but kind of take us through you know what those uh, yeah. ensuing months are like
1: yeah so i i came back to australia pretty much i think it was the day after i won like i had a 6am flight out of denver um straight back to australia Um, and then I spent sort of the next couple of weeks, I played a couple sort of smaller pro events, actually the pro events I was going to play as a pro if I hadn't, um, if I hadn't won the mid end. So I played them as an amateur, um, sort of got a bit more experience. My game was still pretty solid. And then I played the Australian open in, it was in December, which was a pretty good field. I, I actually played really well. I was coming like ninth after two rounds and finished, I think 21st. So my game was still in really good shape. Through the summer or our summer, you know, played Australian amateur masters, amateurs, bunch of the amateur tournaments through January, February, March, and then on March 11, I I left to head to the US to to get over there to prep a little bit early for for the Masters. I landed in the US, but I mean, everyone knows the timeline. March 11 was just as things were coming out with COVID. It was actually the day the day I landed was the day that the NBA suspended the season, and then the day after was the first round of the uh, Players' Championship, which they played with crowds, and then they ended up suspending it or, or cancelling and then cancelling or suspending the season that, that evening. So I kind of knew at that point that it was a slim chance that I was actually going to be playing the Masters in April. And I boarded a flight the following morning to Atlanta. I was going to actually head to Augusta to, to, for a few few days on the weekend to play the course with a member, and my caddy Will was going to join me. And then we boarded the flight. Checked my emails and it said the tournament was going to be postponed. But thankfully, the member that I was going with um, still was keen to play. So we did spend the weekend that weekend at Augusta National and we stayed in Butler Cabin and had the the full kind of guest experience, which, which was just amazing. But I always knew on the back of, back of the mind there was that dampener that I wouldn't be playing the Masters in, in April, which was, yeah, a little frustrating. Yeah, I hopped on a plane back home to Australia literally a couple of days later and spent Eight weeks locked down, not able to play golf in Melbourne because we had a pretty strict lockdown at that point. Finally, got back playing golf in mid-May. Sort of things were pretty normal in Australia for for probably a good sort of three months. I was playing a fair bit, and then August six, I actually left for the US, um, and that was the start of my sort of trip over. I played the the amateur at Bandon Dunes, and then was basically from from then on in the US until when I returned back um, this week.
0: A quick break to check in with our friends at Elijah Craig. Uh, I know we had previously mentioned in another read, uh, Lauren Coughlin, one of our young hitters, her husband, John, being a huge bourbon fan, a huge Elijah Craig fan, actually had them over last night and saved him some of the barrel proof, which he gave me a great tip. Don't leave the bottle on its side because it gets in the cork and you're not supposed to do that. So, again, I'm kind of an amateur at this stuff, but he's teaching me. We're learning. Uh, Thanksgiving is obviously coming up this Thursday. It's going to be a very very small one in this household i hope that uh, everyone is being very safe with their gatherings this year but i think i'm going to be busting out the elijah craig to work on work on my old-fashioned that i've been working on as well uh kentucky mules kentucky mules are big in this household so The Elijah Craig, it's exceptionally smooth. It's well-balanced. I also like to drink it on the rocks. We've mentioned many of the ways that we like to enjoy the many different kinds of Elijah Craig. So for more recipe ideas, visit ElijahCraig.com and discover the greatness within. No Laying Up is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky. 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Let's get back to Lucas Michelle fascinating instagram follow the last several months just popping up (laughs) at golf courses all over the country like you had had yourself quite a trip but how does it work with once you're in the field at the masters i guess did you already know an augusta member that was going to get you out on the golf course or are you able to call them up and say hey i'd love to come down for a practice round is there a chance you overstay you're welcome how does how does all that work
1: so as yeah, as an invitee, it doesn't matter, I think, if you're an amateur or, or a pro or anything like that, but as an invitee, I think you can go unaccompanied. I think it's like four or five days worth of play. So you could play like, you know, fifty four holes a day if you wanted, but um, it's basically five unaccompanied days, I think it is. Yeah. So fortunately Will and I actually both knew a member go there with Will and Will was out able to play as well, Will My Caddy. And um we spent the weekend there. Um, normally as a invited player, you can't stay on site, but Obviously, with a member, um, you can. So, we got the, the truly authentic member experience. Um, yeah, staying in Butler Cabin, we were hoping that that was a good omen for November and it ended up being. And I think actually I worked out we were there exactly um, to the day, the weekend, maybe what was it? it would have been eight months prior to, to when the ceremony was. We were there on the Sunday. Um, but yeah, turned out I didn't unfortunately win the low amateur on. Uh, it was still pretty cool. Hmm.
0: Well, all right. We've, you know, we've, we've lasted this long without getting into what it's like to play in the freaking masters. So, I mean, (laughs) you, the, the first question I have though is in relation, if you were given the option to defer your masters exemption to a time when there would have been fans, would you have taken that option? That is a tough question. Um, Your pro timeline might affect your answer there.
1: I think I'd probably just do what I did. I mean, I was, yeah, I would probably take the November invite just because I don't know. I feel like the the experience I got was in a lot of ways very unique, and at the same time, I I, I wouldn't want to delay my my sort of plans for my golf and my career another year or two. I mean, who knows what April's going to be like, you know, coming up. Like I doubt it's going to be full fans, so. I would expect it wouldn't be until, tw- I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on the pandemic, but it, I would expect not until 2022 until we actually get a full kind of crowd out there at Augusta with normal sort of travel. So, yeah, I, I, I think I would probably just take the November one for for what it is. And, you know, it was really unique in a lot of ways. And uh, the experience I got was, was pretty cool anyway.
0: Yeah, that's why I was just, I was, I was wondering for the people that it was their first time, I'm sure you were chomping at the bit, you know, having to wait eight months to do it or however many months it was, seven months to get there that, um, you know, it, it, it you probably couldn't wait any longer than you did. And, uh, yeah, it's not, I was just curious your answer there. So that, that, that doesn't surprise me really, but what, uh, so you, you'd seen the golf course before the week of the tournament. And I know this is a weird one with it being in November, but everyone's always said like, you can go hit the shots prior, you can go play the course, but it's nothing like it is during actual tournament week. Did you feel that difference from, you know, from when you had played it previously to tournament week? So
1: I'd been there, I actually went in December, 2019, and that was probably the closest that I saw to what it was, um, tournament week. Um, in December, it was really similar. Like the the fairways were similar, the amount of ride that had come through and um, certain spots around the course. It was soft for tournament week, unfortunately, and I was hoping it was going to be firmer and faster. But say when I was there in December, it was probably most similar. I Obviously, I spent that weekend there in March, and that was that was starting to dial up towards what i would expect the masters to to look like for a tournament week it was interesting to see the place i've been, I now, i've now seen it in november december and march so it plays very different at different times of the year obviously the the maintenance schedule that they do is sort of based around it peaking for for april so they there in november it's a very different golf course to to when it is in april and as as hard as they tried to to kind of replicate the conditions of april i think the, the weather and the climate just didn't quite allow them to get it how they wanted to, um, which was a little unfortunate. I would have liked to have played a firm and fast masters, but you know, next time I'll take next what time. I can get. Yeah. yeah.
0: You're going to have to, it's going to be a little, you're going to have a different route back to getting there once you turn professional, but, uh, let's just make this one not be the last one, but what, what, what are some things maybe you learned about Augusta or things you see differently after having competed on the course? And I don't know if it's something that you maybe would have learned in prior trips uh, to the Masters, but I'm just I'm just wondering, it, you know, when you walk off, do you say like, "Well, I didn't wasn't expecting that," or "Wow, that was different," or kind of what your overall reaction was.
1: So, in terms of like what I expected to see, even prior to playing it ever before, I think the greens. I always thought the greens, and I'd never been to a Masters before. I always thought the greens had a lot of tilt on them, but for me, I, I was surprised at how they were kind of segmented with like a lot of sections. So you got greens like five and 14 and six that have like all these shelves on them, which I, I actually didn't expect them to be like that. I mean, I've played a lot of Alistair McKenzie courses in Australia and none of them are really like that. But I guess McKenzie didn't spend that much time in Australia actually building the golf courses he did. Whereas you look at the courses he, he's done in America, like past Tiempo and Augusta National, and those ones tend to have more of that character. So in terms of like the green complexes, that was probably the most surprising part because I did think you know, the courses of the Sandbelt would prepare me a little better for for how they were, but they were a little different to what I expected. In terms of how it played, I think overall, whenever I was there, it always played a little softer than I expected, but I think because I never really got to play it when it was firm. You know, you watch it on TV and it always looks, you know, most years it looks fairly firm and fast, but um, yeah, unfortunately I never got that opportunity to play it when it was really kind of uh, sort of baking out and playing playing a little firmer everyone talks about the elevation change and you know it's a very hilly golf course and you know metropolitan where i play it's, it's almost dead flat so that's something that i had to go in, in australia and try and go find some golf courses that had had some more hills to prepare for so um, that was the advantage of going in december when i when i did that i could kind of see the course early and it gave me two or three months to actually prepare for for what i saw everyone watches it on tv every year and they feel like they know the course pretty well. And it didn't surprise me a crazy amount. Um, the, The thing that I found was actually a big advantage for me playing it the first time. I putted it quite well and I read the greens really well, but I was just using Aimpoint Express, which is reading it with my feet. And I felt like I had a really good gauge on which way they were breaking because I think a lot of the time the difficulty with reading those greens is like the optical illusions that you get when you've got greens that are built into sort of pretty broad slopes it's really hard to read them sort of against the slopes but um when you're just reading with your feet kind of gravity doesn't really lie so that was actually a big advantage um and yeah I felt like I actually putted it pretty well It just it's a shame I didn't hit the ball a bit better hmm.
0: it seems like you know at least I've obviously I've never played Augusta but in the two practice rounds that I've walked you know of course everyone talks about the elevation change all that but the part that always stuck out to me or as somebody was obviously picturing hitting these shots as I'm walking, I'm like, man, uh, the lies, the uneven lies, and the awkwardness of the shots down 10, the shot into 13, the shot on 9. I don't. You could probably list a bunch more, but did that play much of a factor in terms of how difficult, you know, the, a lot of these guys make these shots look easy, but doing it from those lies is very, very different. It's tough.
1: Yeah, I, I hit it. I actually hit the fairway, like, on 15 i mean i i I missed so many fairways so when i hit a fairway i was actually like surprised i hit the fairway on 15 and i hit it down like the middle pretty much just down the right side of the middle and there's these like little mounds in the fairway that are like maybe 220 yards out from the green so exactly where you hit your driver to and i put it like on the back side of this little mound and i was looking at that shot into the green i was like holy crap this is so much harder than it it probably looks on tv just because there's this like little subtle mound i've got a three iron in my hand that i'm trying to like cut up to the to the pin and make sure it doesn't sort of double cross and go left into the long water left i mean yeah there's a lot of a lot of little slopes i mean that's not even one of the broader fairways you know you go to 13 or you know nine or two and there's you can get some seriously slope lies but just even like a little a little just a you know a little mound like that can have such an effect on how 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 precise a, a, a good player can be on their approach shots? So yeah, that was that was definitely something that I noticed.
0: Well, and fifteen man, that one standing up on top of that hill. I know on TV it doesn't look like an island green, but you stand in that fairway that that does it. Does it not look like an island green? Yeah, I mean
1: obviously, like for a right hander, the the pull shot always goes a little longer, and so you've got that water on the sixteenth that creeps in on the left of the green. And then obviously you cut one up too much and you can you can miss it short as well. It's kind of like, it's like a longer version of 12 in a way. Like 12, you know, it always, it's one of the hardest grains to hit just because your pulls go long and you hit it into the long left area and then your pushes go short and go in the water. So it's kind of the same kind of strategy as 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 the approach shot into, into 12. It's just a little bit longer.
0: What's the shot on 12 like, uh, you know, I will, I maybe want to hit that shot more than any shot in the world. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners are the same way, but what's it like to, you know, hit a shot under pressure, especially on that hole.
1: It's tough. I mean, I almost hit it into the, I mean, it actually landed in the trees behind the green and <laughs> thankfully, thankfully ran, ran back down the hill and kind of into, into that little chipping area. But, um, it's tough. Yeah. For a right-hander, like I said, it's tough. Like it, it really suits a left hander's shape. I actually tried to hit a draw because, When I was fading the ball, I was really struggling with a short right miss. And obviously, that's not what you want (laughs) on that hole. So I was just trying to hit a low draw, trappy draw into that green with like a nine iron. But, you know, missing it long left. I mean, I made up, I actually made birdie in in round one from long left. I chipped it in. Um, And then par in round two, it ended up being a fairly easy place to get up and down from. But yeah, certainly it's uh, it's a nerve-wracking shot to have to play. I I do wish I was a left-hander playing that
0: golf hole. Did you, I mean, did you have any welcome to the Masters moments? Like, you know, it's hard to picture this without the fans, right? But any kind of moments where you're kind of, you know, I don't want to say shitting yourself, but kind of like, holy crap, I'm about to compete in the Masters or, you know, any anything like that?
1: Yeah, without the fans, it definitely, it wasn't as, it didn't feel as real as as like a proper, you know, major golf tournament. I was I was talking to someone else before and I was saying that, I actually felt like with the um, the most nervous I got all week was waiting for my negative COVID test result oh. because that was obviously the point where I knew I was either playing or not, and waiting that hour or so for it to process was actually probably the most nervous I got all week. But you know, still standing on the first tee there and everyone sort of waiting for you to hit because there was still you know maybe twenty, thirty, forty people around the tee box, but you know certainly nothing compared to a normal Masters, but. I did feel my heart rate really start to elevate. Didn't really get any, get any sort of like shaky sort of nerves, but I certainly, it felt a lot realer at that point. In a way, it, it is an advantage for, for guys like me who don't have that experience of playing you know, major golf tournaments to be able to sort of get off the mark in a way. But I would have still preferred to have a, a genuine, authentic, um, nervous master's first tee shot, I think.
0: Did you seek anyone out for practice rounds or who did you, uh, who did you play practice rounds with if anyone?
1: Yeah. So I, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't really seek out people. I actually listened to your podcast with Maddie Kelly. So I was speaking to, to leash a bit. Um, we were going to play on Monday, but it just didn't work out. I just rolled onto the T on, on Monday and uh, turned out Patrick Cantlay and Max Homer and Xander um, Shoffley had a spot in their group. So I jumped in with those guys, which was pretty awesome. I mean, they're, some of the young, really good up-and-coming players. So it was good to sort of see where my game sat next to next to theirs. And, I mean, they were great guys. I got along so well with them. Max Home has got to be one of the most down-to-earth, genuine guys in, in the world. Uh, we had so much fun. And Xander's awesome, such a good player. And And I'd played with Patrick before at the US Open, so we had sort of things to catch up on. It was such a cool experience playing with those guys. And you kind of see that they're still human. That's the other thing. Like, they still hit bad shots. I remember seeing Xander just block one off the second second tee into the right trees and thinking, you know, that sort of wouldn't expect that sort of shot from him. And actually will my caddy was like telling all his buddies back home, don't bet on, don't bet on Xander. You know, he's (laughs) he's playing no good. And then he ends up shooting five under in the first round and he was copying it from all his mates. So that was pretty funny. Um, But yeah, it was, it was just like a really cool um, experience playing with those guys, Um, Xander and, and uh, Patrick dropped out after nine, so it was just myself and Max Homer on the on the back nine together. And it was Max's first experience as well at the Masters. He he didn't even have any practice rounds prior to that. So walking around with him and seeing him go through all the you know emotions of playing Augusta National for the first time was really cool. We were we were both chipping on the back of the fifteenth green. It was actually really funny. Max actually brought this story up in another podcast of his but um, we were chipping at the back of the the 15th green. I was playing this little chip shot and I, I couldn't believe how firm the little sort of approach area was behind that green. I was able to bump through like a lob wedge really well. And I said to Max, I was like, Oh, look at this, look how well this bumps through. And then um, he went and attempted the shot and it just stuck. It just like literally just stuck and bounced backwards and he was like, oh, come on, Lucas, you don't need to put me off now. Like, <laughs> and I told him, I was like, well, I'm not playing for money, so <laughs> I'm just here for fun. <laughs> but he liked that. So that was, that was a good little we – had, we had just a good little fun time on that little back nine holes together. It was good.
0: If you're out there with you know some of the best players in the world like that, are you able to still be preparing for the tournament, or are you now playing golf with those guys and like kind of stressing a little bit about how you're playing? Do you, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah.
1: No, I was. I, I I went fourth off in that group off the first tee, and that was that was a nerve wracking tee shot. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably as nerve wracking as the first tee shot on round one, um, because you've just watched like three guys that are all in the top, you know, well, a couple of them in the top sort of 30 in the world, you know, bomb one down the middle and then you're just this hack mid-am trying to, (laughs) trying to just make up the field and um, just squeeze one out. So uh, yeah, that was probably the most nervous I was prior to maybe the first tee shot and outside of the COVID test as well. Yeah. I was. It was definitely trying to just not embarrass myself in in front of
0: those guys. What was it like playing with Larry Mize? I mean, he had a, you know, he had a great, a great day one, you know, especially, but yeah, what, what, what did you learn from him playing and what it was like playing with him?
1: It was really cool. I mean, he hits it dead straight. He doesn't miss a fairway. He actually, he reminds me so much of how Mike Clayton plays golf. I play golf with Mike Clayton all the time. And it's like, it was like, I was just playing with Mike again, you know, dead straight, 250 down the middle, you know, nothing, nothing more, you know, he miss hits on and, you know, he's, you know not doesn't look too happy about it and it's like left edge of fairway it was it's actually quite similar to I guess how the top women play as well I mean they you know when they miss a shot it's like on one side of the fairway it's not in the rough so yeah it was kind of like playing with like Suo as well um yeah it was it was seriously impressive and, and he had a great day that first round obviously I mean he didn't miss a shot hitting woods into most of the long par fours and then putting great i mean it was it was really cool and he's a really nice guy we had a little joke um <laughs> about the you know greg norman in uh, 1987 when he when he chipped in on greg to win the masters one of my buddies from back home who's not the biggest greg norman fan um wanted wanted me to thank him for uh <laughs> for, for, for what he's done <laughs> for, he actually said thank him for what he did for golf in australia which i'm not sure was accurate because greg winning the masters would have been a great thing but um but yeah, he wasn't the biggest Greg fan. So Larry had a laugh about that.
0: <laughs> did you have any specific goals in mind for the week? I mean, did you put pressure on yourself to make the cut or anything in particular?
1: I mean, if I had a goal, I wanted it to be kind of lofty and, and I didn't want it to be some sort of, you know, make the card or or something like that or not embarrass myself or something like that. I wanted it to be, you know, a fairly lofty goal. So the one I wanted to set myself was an invite back, which is top twelve, which is, you know, fairly lofty for a player of my caliber. But um I didn't think it was like completely ridiculous either. And I felt like my form was decent coming in. So I, I definitely pegged that as my goal and obviously I fell quite a bit short, but um but yeah, I, I really just wanted that invite back to to play maybe a more authentic Masters in April, you know, with some friends and family around. But unfortunately didn't didn't achieve that. But I suppose, in a way, also didn't really completely embarrass myself, which was which was good as well. I just, you know, would have liked to have played a little bit better.
0: And and this is where I don't want you to be shy about this. If if I ask this, you know, minus nine was T10, which was what top twelve. Everyone that finished minus nine or better got uh, the invite back. After seeing the golf course, knowing your game. Do you think it was possible that you could have in, in in the right circumstances without like without it being completely ridiculous, you know, holding out from fairways, whatnot? You think you could shoot that over four days in that golf course?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I told myself at the beginning of the week, like two under each day is very doable. So, I mean, with how I played, I hit, hit my driver so poorly in round one and hit my irons so poorly all week. I mean, there was easily... I easily could have shot a couple under every day if I just had a solid ball striking performance. Really, that's all I needed. Uh, maybe three under one of the days as well. But you know, that would have got me to minus nine and that would have been in the in the spot there. So um yeah, that was sort of the, the takeaway was that my game, you know, even though I missed the cut by six, I still didn't feel like my game was actually that far away. It's just getting my ball striking a hell of a lot better because my short game's good enough. And that's what I saw. It's just hitting the ball. Um, in a way that, you know, just a bit more consistent because, yeah, I just was very disappointed with how I struck it.
0: Do you, at the, in the same vein, though, do you see minus 20 on that golf course over four days?
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a little harder to see, certainly for myself. Well, I mean, not I'm you, not
0: even saying for you, just like, do you even understand? I, I
1: kind of can because, like, I know, I mean, you see how good that guy is at golf. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, he is so good at golf. So, like, for a guy like him, I mean, obviously, he played great. Any one by five in, in the strongest field in golf, or one of them. But, you know, for that guy, it's, you know, you can kind of expect it. But yeah, it, it's it's obviously quite a ridiculous score. I definitely could, could never really see myself shooting that score, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, DJ, on the other hand, I mean, I wouldn't put much past him.
0: Did you do the uh, typical one night in the crow's nest?
1: Well, unfortunately due to COVID they I, they as weren't. As soon as I asked that, I've people. just
0: realized yeah, you couldn't do it. As yeah. soon as I asked that. Yeah. Well
1: well you couldn't do multiple people in the crow's nest at once. But I still got to stay I got to stay Sunday night and no one had booked in there for Saturday night. So I booked Saturday night as well. So I got to spend two nights in there, which I think was more than anyone else, any of the other amateurs, which was really cool. Um, you know, they they send you a little menu and you order from the, it's like room service. They come up with a little you know, tray of food from the kitchen. And yeah, it was it was really cool. Masters films are on the TV, so you can just watch whatever one you want to watch. It was, yeah, it was a really cool little experience up there. And you can really feel the history of the place. I slept under a photo of Ben Crenshaw. And, um, and all the photos on the wall are great of all the amateurs that have competed up there. And, and then gone on to win Masters. It's pretty
0: cool. I recently got married and I remember thinking during the the reception thinking like if I could just pause a moment in my life, you know, I just wanted this moment to go slower than it is. It, it go and it ends up going even faster. I I'm, I'm sure you probably mm. felt the same kind of rush of just like the time passes just like it's any other day and even if with if it's the most anticipated moment or you know, you know, golf moment of your life, you can't make it slow down in any way. That's got to be yeah. such a weird feeling.
1: Yeah, I felt, yeah, that was how I felt about the whole week, really. I mean, it it does move so so fast. You get there, I got there Sunday afternoon and next minute it's Thursday, I'm teeing it up. Like, it just goes so quickly. There's so much you kind of want to fit into that. You want to try and, you know, like meet Tiger and you want to do this and you want to chat to Roy or you want or you want to do all these things. And then next minute you're like sitting in a hotel room in Australia thinking, huh, I wonder if I get that opportunity again. So it's like... <laughs> it's it's yeah it, it goes really quick but I mean I can't complain I, I had such a good experience there and I did so much of the things that I've always wanted to do and I mean I play the Masters Tournament now so it's it was it was yeah an incredible week still
0: hmm. any other really cool moments did you get to meet Tiger did you get to meet Rory did you any anything else from the week that uh, that you'll tell for many years
1: I I mean Phil was on the range you know I was hitting balls opposite him and he introduced himself which was really cool really nice guy obviously Man of the people, um, super friendly. Bryson actually was hitting bombs on the range next to me as well. And uh, my caddy, myself, and my coach were just like in awe of watching him. And he came over and had a chat to us and introduced himself, which was cool. But probably the funniest the funniest one was on Saturday, I'm, I, I headed to the pro shop to pick up a few things for my caddy and my coach. And I'm in there, and obviously as an amateur, you know, I'm dressed I'm, I'm not wearing all the sponsors logos. I'm not wearing like, I don't look like, you know, a pro as much, I suppose. And on top of that, I'm wearing a mask. And so I'm in, I'm in the shop and I'm sort of looking around, but I don't really have any items. And Adam Scott's in there. And I played with Adam Scott at the US Open and or in, in a practice round. And so um, he knows who I am and he looks over to me, doesn't recognize me, thinks I'm one of the people working in the shop one of the like the assistant pros and starts asking me about the shipping or something or getting getting his items home and just like looking at me obviously with mask on and i I started cracking up and i pulled my i had my um little accreditation badge on and i just like held it up against his face (laughs) he was so embarrassed (laughs) he was so apologetic so we had a good chat after that it was funny because i told him i was like you're not actually the first person who's asked me because i had two of the um two-player wives did the exact same thing to me, so I guess I was dressed like I was working in the in the pro shop. There, it was pretty funny.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great! No, I felt like I just was along for the ride there for uh, for for playing in the Masters. It's it's so cool that that prize is available to mid-ams and uh, and then it's honored. And I, I, it sounds like you had the had the time of your life. But it, I feel like I feel bad kind of burying the U.S. Open after all. You know, we're coming fresh off the uh, fresh off the Masters. But I mean, what was that? What was that like? Kind of leading up to that—that's your first major championship that you've ever uh, ever competed in. What was your game like coming in, and how do you how do you go about preparing for a place like Wingfoot?
1: Yeah, I mean, my preparation was probably not ideal. I was I was actually working for Mike Devries up in Michigan um, on a project, learning some hands-on golf course construction stuff in the lead-up. So, I mean, I was practicing like most days for like parts of the day, but I was also pretty keen to, to, yeah, like I said, learn some hands-on construction stuff. So I sort of got to Winged Foot having not really played a tournament since it was Ban and Dunes, uh, the amateur. And before that, it was the Riversdale Cup in Australia in March. So I'd really only played one tournament in, in six, six, seven months. So my preparation probably wasn't ideal. Um, I certainly felt like I could get my game up for it, but um, as soon as I started... I think I probably burnt myself out a little earlier in the week, and it's a long week. And I got to the back nine on Thursday, and I mean, I think I'd exhausted all my mental energy playing playing the front nine and just grinding it out. Uh, I was even par through nine, and then finished ten over for the day. So um, certainly didn't have have a great great day or great week overall at at Wingfoot, but you know, it's, it's still, it still was my first uh, major experience, and uh, I'll always remember it. It was it was still really cool.
0: I don't mean to, I shouldn't start straight with this, but I was just going through like your card and everything. And you got you to help me out with the shot tracker on the uh, on the 18th hole right. here.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, everyone's seen that tee shot. It's, it's a bit of a shoot. Um, I pulled it left and it was a bad shot, but it hit a branch and just ricocheted straight left. And it was pretty much on the 17th green. Like it went, I think, I don't know what pro- the tracer said, but I think it went like 63 yards, something like that, the tee shot. So it was like on the back edge of the of the 17th green, which was actually kind of fine, but it was obviously embarrassing because the group behind, like there's you know, guys looking at me like, what the hell is this guy doing? But I managed to, you know, I drew a good lie where I was and I had a shot to play straight up the 11th fairway on the east course, which pl- runs parallel to 18. So I had like a, a good shot up the hole, but... I screwed that one up as well and put it in the, between the two holes and then had to chip out and then three putted. So I made triple. So <laughs> I ended up shooting. I was like, I got to the 18th tee. I was like, well, at least I'm not going to shoot 80 and then made triple and shot 80. Oh, so, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was annoying.
0: What do you think of the way that golf course was set up as a test for major championship golf? And I, I'm wondering how you can compare and contrast what it's like to compete on a course like Augusta and a, and a US open setup at Wingfoot. I
1: I really like the setup of Wingfoot, if I'm honest. Like, I know the fairways were, like, super narrow and the rough was kind of ridiculous, but the greens were firm and fast. And in a way, having the rough how they had it, which was, like, super thick but kind of, like, consistent, you could actually start hedging angles off tees because if you missed it in the wrong rough line, so, like, down one, doglegs left, green opens up um, from the right, if you missed it in the left rough rough line, you like basically couldn't hit the green. But if you missed it in the right rough line, you had like a really open shot to sort of run something up the front. Um, and then on two is the opposite, like two opens up to the left of the fairway. So you miss it in the left rough and you're fine. You miss it in the right rough, you're dead. And so it was actually quite strategic off the tee, which is really interesting. It was obviously completely contrived. But the strategy of the tee shots and angles actually kind of, it actually kind of mattered a bit playing playing at Wingfoot. So somehow for for twenty two yard wide fairways with thick rough, angles actually mattered at Wingfoot. <laughs> it was it was strange.
0: Okay, so the, I was going to ask you there. You're saying angles actually mattering. I was I was going to ask. Are you seeing like at the top level of the game how angles aren't really nearly as important, or or are you just saying basically like, all right, even though it was super narrow, it mattered kind of where you were coming in from.
1: Yeah, I think Wingfoot more than anywhere. Obviously, Australia, Sandbell, Royal Melbourne, kind of firm and fast. I mean, that's the ideal. But um, Wingfoot, more than anywhere I'd played recently, the angle that you were coming in from into that green because you had to be, you know, on the correct rough line or fairway side. It actually, it actually kind of made you think about what you were doing off the tee a bit more than most places, which is, which is cool in a way. But obviously, yeah, not not probably a, an easy <laughs> easy thing for most golf courses to to uh aspire to uh, given the rough was as ridiculous as it was and i mean yeah everyday player couldn't play out of that but for the best players in the world it kind of kind of worked to to get people kind of being a little bit more strategic off the tee which was interesting but yeah it wouldn't be how i'd suggest things set up either
0: <laughs> how did you end up playing a practice round with adam scott did you guys have a relationship beforehand and what was uh what was it like playing with him
1: yeah, so I got in touch with um a, a, a Australian guy, Evan Priest, who he's like a I think he works for The Associated Press. and he's just an Australian um, reporter, and he he had he had a line to Adam Scott and we were talking, he was talking to me, and I said to Evan whether it'd you know be okay if he'd put me in touch with Adam. And Adam a couple of days later texted me and I actually missed missed the text when it when I got it, and it took me like fourteen hours to reply to it, which was funny. Um, but I got a text from Adam and and texted him back and we, we lined up for, I think it was either Monday or Tuesday, we played with Curtis Luck uh, as well. And Rio Ishikawa joined us too, which was a cool group, um, kind of three really cool guys to play golf with. And that was fun. Adam's like nicest guy in the world, obviously incredible player as well. So to just see how he gets around a golf course, how he kind of tries to figure out the greens and the chip around grains to figure out, you know, where the best misses are around the grains as well. And just, just learning little things off him was, was really fun.
0: Yeah. I'm sure all those little things aren't, you know, they're not going to change your game overnight, but you accumulate enough of those little things. I, like I find is. it. Yeah. I especially find it just like watching LPGA golf when I'm there is like, mm-hmm. Oh man, like it, it doesn't have to be super complicated. Like just kind of do it like, almost kind of incepting, uh, what they're doing or in front of you into your your own mind, and I don't know i, I obviously I'm not comparing uh, any I'm not even playing next to these people. I'm just saying like just being around great golf can really have some kind of effect on you. I'm sure you saw so much great golf in the last year that it's hard to even process all the things you saw,
1: yeah, I've definitely come away with a really good understanding of where my game needs to get better and where my weaknesses are, which is obviously useful feedback for me to to try and get better because, I mean, there's no better way to learn than
0: from off the best players in the world. What would you say those things are?
1: I mean, almost entirely with my long game. Uh, driver, I'm just, my dispersion's way too wide. And then iron play as well. I, I, I think it's not so much that, like I can hit all the shots, but I just, just like, instead of hitting them like, you know, nine, eight, seven out of 10, I'll hit them like five out of 10, you know, times through a target or something like that. So I've just got to really dial in how I practice to be more focused on, you know, getting my, tightening my dispersions with, with all my clubs, because it was pretty stark how well they struck the ball compared to how I struck the ball. Um, which was, yeah, it's just, yeah, my, I think it's obviously a little bit of technique stuff. Obviously I struggle with Left and right misses quite a bit, and so um, there's something to be learned there in terms of how I manage the club face into impact. But yeah, I think a lot of it will come down to just some more dedicated practice on my long game.
0: I'm not sure where what the original source of this. It might be one of the cheesy like motivational posters. Like this might be the cheesiest thing you've ever heard, but it's always stuck with me. The you know amateurs practice until they get it right, and pros practice until they can't get it wrong. And like what you said there, kind of resonated on that. Like you, ha- you have all of the shots, but the next level is getting to a point where you're not making a mistake. And that's not that's not a ment. I don't necessarily think that's a mental thing. You know what I mean? It's not like there's a mental mistake you can make. But even if you know what the right shot is, the very best players. Just aren't going to make that physical mistake nearly as often, even as someone at your level. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, I like, I look at my technique and my swing looks really pretty to look at, but there's some stuff in there that I, I don't like. I think I, I listened to um, your podcast actually with um, Mike Lorenzo Vera, and he was talking about the same things. You know, he swings it. You know, he's got a pretty golf swing, but when you really slow it down, there's a lot of stuff that you can pick out. And I mean, I I see that how much face rotation I come into the ball with I mean the the club is literally rotating so much through the impact zone that how how do I match that up like and limiting how much that rotates will be a big part of me hitting the ball better um and so that's that's like one technique sort of thing that I've been working on I mean it's kind of a combination of technique and then just dedicated practice to really dial it in I think
0: well, is it got it's gotta be hard for you to make any kind of technique adjustments leading up into this stretch, right? You weren't gonna swing overhaul before playing the US Open and Masters. That's gotta be hard to like know the things you need to work on and not be ready to have a full teardown, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean I did I had that eight week period in Melbourne where I was locked down and I couldn't play golf. I had a net in the backyard. So I was working pretty hard on some like technical stuff. And that was actually a really good opportunity because I knew I'd have a lot of months to get it kind of bedded in. And so I worked really hard, but I mean, I mean, I'm only 26, but when you've been playing golf, as long as I have, there's so much stuff that's just drilled into you to try and make changes it's so difficult. I mean, Tiger's, Tiger was so amazing with what he did, like changing his golf swing as drastically as he did. I mean, I'm not sure if a lot of the time he did, he did it for a good reason or if it actually benefited him, but how he was able to change it and change his patterns so much, I mean, that guy is incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's really uh, that's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about Bandon here before we let you go. And then there's a, a one particular uh, golf shot I know I got to ask you about at the end of this as well. But uh Bandon Dunes is not was not I wouldn't say designed to host uh, you know the top amateur uh, event in the US, but what What was it like to to compete on on those golf courses on Bandon Dunes and Bandon Trails? And had you been out there before? And, you know, as you're a golf architecture lover, which that might be a separate podcast we would do, what was your experience like out there?
1: I mean, people talk about Augusta National being Disneyland for golfers, but that's probably even closer to it. I mean, it's way more accessible for everyone. Um, It's such a cool place. Playing the tournament there was really cool. Obviously, we were playing at Bandon Dunes and Bandon Trails. So Trails, I played the first round there. I mean, I got so much wind in that first round. I played late on the first round. I was playing 16, and I think it was like driver, three wood, six iron. And the six iron I hit up up the hill literally just ballooned and went about 70 yards. It was insane. Um, (laughs) So that was borderline unplayable. Um, But, I mean, if it wasn't the US amateur, it would have been so much fun. But having to play that under tournament conditions was pretty, pretty <laughs> demoralizing. But yeah, I mean, I loved it. The place is awesome. Um, I went and played the three other golf courses while I was there. Plus we did the, the preserve as well. That was like our pre-tournament sort of fun nine hole thing, 13 hole thing that we did. It's such a cool place. It, it reminds me a lot of Bamboogle Dunes that we have in, in Australia, uh, which I've been to a couple of times, but I mean, band is just everything ba- uh, Bamboogle's got, but times three, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome.
0: It's it's just amazing how long of a trip you need out there to really get the full experience. You know, like you you can go and miss if you miss one of the courses, you truly are. You know, you're missing out. Did you have a uh, any? Uh, well, I guess what was your favorite or what which one did you which one resonated with you the most? Subject of of course hot debate. Any any time you talk, band-in.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's not the most scenic, but I thought Old McDonald was just the coolest. I thought the Green Complexes, like the templates, were so good. I, I remember hitting the So the the Redan, when I played it, was like straight downwind. And, I mean, a Redan for me, like, I mean, normally it's really hard to play a Redan how it should be played. You know, you land it at the front right and then you roll it around. They had a back left pin on the Redan. I mean, I still hit the six sign because it was so heavily downwind. But I hit this little six sign, it landed at the front right edge with a little draw and fed all the way down to like three feet. And I was like, it was like, I was ecstatic that I just played the Redan, how it was supposed to be played, because I'm such like a architecture nerd. But um I, I loved Old McDonald. I thought that was so much fun. And I was there by myself. I, I I was obviously for the tournament, I was there by myself. And then they just put me out by myself on on the other courses. Um but I had so much fun just playing golf by myself at Old McDonald. It was it was awesome. And Pacific Dunes was probably I, I I'd be hard pressed to choose a favorite out of them, but Pacific and Old Mac were probably two of my favorites and then i actually didn't play sheep ranch i ran out of time and and walked around it and i mean it was at dusk and it was so beautiful it's the most scenic of probably all of the courses um and that was awesome to see but i'll have to go back and play it and then trails was great obviously um playing the tournament there was really cool you get to see parts of the golf course that I mean you kind of don't really appreciate parts unless you play it in tournament play I think sometimes that 14th hole that short path four down the hill that that was just diabolical downwind that was so crazy but it was it was in a way so fun just because it was so ridiculous but yeah I mean it's it's an awesome it's an awesome golf golf destination I loved it
0: What's funny is Pacific and Old McDonald are four and five on my list. Yet, like I really? totally get where you're coming from. Like I, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it, like you can't. No matter where you rank them or how you fall out, you end up with something at the bottom that doesn't make any sense. And you know, like Big Randy loves Old McDonald. That's his favorite. And I'm like, you know what? Like that's what evokes emotion for you. It's funny. I've always struggled with the Redan. So that's like my least favorite hole out there. <laughs> I just, I can't uh, get that one. To, I can't get that one. That to is work a tough me.
1: one though. I guess it, I only played it once, but it's a tough Redand for
0: sure. It, it's got a little part in the middle of it that actually starts to work away from you and, and over the green back to the right, which I, I didn't necessarily enjoy, but all right, we're going to let you out of here with, uh, I've I read about, I'd, I'd known about, I've seen the video. I knew about this, uh, but I've read an article recently that, that uh, talked about a particular shot you hit at the old course that maybe no one else has ever hit before. I'm wondering, uh, if you statute limitation appears to be up on this, but if you could tell us this story,
1: <laughs> yeah, this is probably the one time I can tell it. Um, so I so yeah, I, I studied for six months at the University of St. Andrews at a room it was in Mackintosh Hall, which is like a building sort of like parallel on the right of um, the eighteenth hole on the old course. And the room I was in was on the top floor hundred and seventy yards from the eighteenth green. Um, and I had a window facing the 18th green, also facing out to like West Sands and like a beautiful view of town. And so I, I got there, I moved into my, my room, I remember, and looking out the window and going, Holy crap, I could hear a shot onto the 18th. But like, that was the first thing I thought of when I got into the room. But then I was like, at the same time, I was like, That's a horrible idea. Like, <laughs> why would you do that? And then I, I kept thinking about it. I was there for a semester and I kept thinking about it. And I discussed it with a few friends. And I came up with a plan to do it on the last night I was there because I was leaving the following morning at like 7am in a cab to get to the train station, which was then taking me to the airport. And so I thought if there was a time I could do it where they can't really stop me and there'd be almost no consequences. It was probably late night, the night before I leave. So we were I was with a few friends. We went in, I got a beer to settle the nerves, not just one, not not too many. Um, and then we we kind of mapped it out what I was going to do. We had a few people down on basically on the 18th green. I mean, it's the middle of the night. It was like midnight. So we had three or four people like standing near the green sort of waiting for the shot to come down. Cause I didn't want too many people making a lot of noise in my room and kind of attracting attention. And then I had a couple close friends in my room to sort of watch the shot and, Recorded and I've got it on video, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting it out. I don't think. But it's, it, it can sort of stay in in, in verbal kind of <laughs> conversation here. Anyway, it was an eight iron. I'd been to the range that day and figured out how far away from the wall or the window I needed to be for that eight iron trajectory to come out perfectly at that height of the window. And it was two eight iron lengths away from the window, and I lined it up and thinned the first one straight into the wall (laughs) made a massive noise but it was into the wood paneling so it actually didn't do much damage Uh, I was lucky and then the next one I flushed out onto the green and everyone was like cheering and everything and I actually got a noise complaint Um, (laughs) but thankfully no one found out what I was doing and went down with my buddies and the guys on the on the green found the ball it was just at the back edge of the green and I I two-putted made a three from from my room in St
0: Andrews so that was pretty cool that's a hell of a way to go out and that, that's, yeah. the way, that's where you're going to go out on this uh, on this podcast. We're going to let you go. So, yeah. well, congrats, man, on an amazing, amazing year and uh, I loved hearing the story, loved following it and we can't wait to see what's next for you and thanks, uh, thanks a ton for coming on and telling the story.
1: No problem. No, thanks for having me.
0: Cheers. Anytime. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today.
1: Yes! Johnny, yes! that's... Better than most, how about in? That is better than most, better than most!